Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market welcome to the new books network Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Sayande. Sayande is currently working as an assistant professor in the Department of Language and Literature, Alliance University, Bangalore. He's also a faculty fellow at the Harriet Tubman Institute, York University, Canada. His latest monographs are Green Academia, Towards Eco-Friendly Education Systems, Rutledge 2022, and Performing Memories, Weaving Archives, Creolized Cultures Across the Indian Ocean, and Thumpress 2023. His areas of research interest are post-humanism, decolonial studies, environmental studies, critical race studies, culinary epistemologies, and critical diversity literacy. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss his very latest book, Performing Memories and Weaving Archives, Creolized Cultures Across the Indian Ocean, to be published by Anthem Press uh, in 2024. Uh, one version or the e-version is already out, as I had mentioned. So, Sain, welcome to NBN. Thank you very much for giving me the time and the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you, first of all, so much, Rituparna, I mean, for for the warm invitation and also taking out your time and investing your energy to go through the work and thinking it's worthwhile and inviting me into the space for this conversation. I'm so much looking forward to Right. So let me just begin by asking you about the context in which you write this book. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I think that's a very, a very nice space to initiate the conversation, which also will kind of give me the liberty of the whole background of not only the book, but also about sharing uh, the perspectives that also relates to my indulgence, my personal, my political and my cultural indulgence with the different thematic dimensions of this project. So uh, officially, this project was actually conceived as a part of my postdoctoral research back in 2021. But obviously, there are more to this than just being a postdoctoral project. I personally got interested into this um, space of creolizations of cultures and societies and traditions and lifestyles quite back in my childhood days, obviously when I was not at all familiar with the word Creole or Creolization, because right from my childhood days, I was very fascinated by the intercultural and the transcultural 
um, existence of different communities. And what I mean by these jargons are basically to understand that how different communities, irrespective of their uh, different cultural styles, political styles, existential patterns, they coexist with each other in a very caring and sharing ways. Right. So that was like, and in the in the past, I mean, even before embarking into this project, I did work on you know, diverse interracial communities like uh, the Anglo-Scots, uh, the Anglo-Indian communities, and various other communities uh, which actually within India who are very much existent within India and who kind of display a very cross-cultural, cross-border and multiracial existential patterns. And that is this this kind of interest in the space motivated me to uh, walk into this space of working with the Afro-Indian community as well in the Indian perspective who are widely known as the Siddhis, as I, as I have mentioned in the book. And then also uh, the indentured Indians, the indentured South African Indian community uh, who are spread across different parts of South Africa. And specifically, I've chosen South Africa and India as comparison grounds because I, I believe that, I mean, apart from the different forms of racial, cultural, um, political, and most important, the colonial history that we share with each other, it is also important to understand how, you know, because of having the common colonizers, that is um, the British colonizers, I mean, obviously, South Africa also had a long period of Dutch colonization as well, but British colonization was also very significant out there as it was very much significant in India. So we do also share a lot of common cultural challenges, cultural pains and angst and agonies and resistances. So these were some of the many common grounds that actually motivated me to take up this particular project and engage in a comparative analysis about their selective cultures and traditions uh, and, and and to bring into the ocean most important the ocean into the conversation because uh, you know if you look at these communities if you look at the histories of these communities we see they have a very strong association with the ocean both in terms of pain as well as in terms of celebration right so in your book you look at the everyday through you know through different spheres of food music and the sacred i want to ask you about the interconnections as well as you know how do you bring them together if you could talk a little bit about it using some examples uh, absolutely and um, and this is actually i think uh, your your question very much serves as the basis of my understanding of this whole term about realization. Also, I want to, I, I believe I should have done while responding to my previous question when I did use the word, but I would like to clarify that because the term usually Creole and Creolization, when we use this term by default, we stereotypically think about, I mean, think this to analyze this term from a very linguistic perspective, from a very linguistic context. But here it is important to understand that I use the term very specifically in the cultural context and also how the different cultures get interwoven with each other and how they coexist and cohabituate without trying to cancel out each other. So that is where my creolization, the whole no notion of creolization that I 
derive the, the idea of creolization that we also see very prominently surfaces in the works of, uh, you know, historians and thinkers like uh, Ananya Jahanara Kabir. Uh, we can look into the works of Professor Lewis Gordon. Uh, we can look into these notions of creolization in the works of Rosina Mart, widely in the context of Africa and South Africa and critical race studies and various, various other scholars across the world. So I just want to give this background to sort of explain to the listeners and the readers that from where my arguments on creolization emerge. Now, it is actually this point that has led to this whole uh, understanding of these three spheres that I specifically highlight in the work, that is food, music, and sacred. How do they coexist and interact with each other in my work. And um, also I would like to share that obviously there are many other cultural components that could have been taken into the conversation, uh, but I've specifically chosen these three components because personally I'm very interested, fascinated uh, by these three cultural components about the different social dynamics, the different power structures that can be located in these components, number one. And the number second, element is I, I felt that uh, a, a, in a lot of these, uh, these components within the paradigm of creolization and outside have not been sufficiently explored, especially in terms of its intersections. That is how the three, you know, uh, speak to each other. And when basically I was doing my, uh, you know, field research and field works, which obviously I'm going to talk more about as we go ahead with the conversation. But as I was doing my field research and field works, what I saw really fascinating is that how, uh, you know, for instance, when I was looking very specifically, if I come to very specific instances, like I was looking at the folklores, the various forms of oceanic folklores that are associated with the Afro-Indian Siddhi community in India and the South African Indian indentured communities in South Africa. Uh, for them, food, music, dance, singing, um, and, you know, various other, like the spiritual practices, they're not separate entities because when they were uprooted from their native geographical and cultural locations, and when they were forced to sort of relocate, uh, you know, somewhere else, uh, at that point of time, they tried their best to carry forward different forms of cultural practices and objects along with them at the time of the transportation. So to elaborate this point further, for instance, uh, if you if you read about the different diaries and the published records and the various unpublished records that are there on the South African, I mean, the Indians who were carried to Natal in, in South Africa back in the 19th, mid of the 19th century, you will see that along while they're going in the ships, uh, you know, they're carrying their musical instruments, they're carrying seeds of plants, they're carrying their their clothes and and the knitting objects with which the women carrying the different wool and you know raw materials and the different things with which they can knit clothes and all. They're carrying utensils. So you, you see when they're 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 carrying the music, they're carrying the images of the of the deities and the various gods and goddesses they worship back in the village or in the cities from wherever they are coming from. So you see, when they're carrying themselves, they try to make sure they could carry as much as perspectives of their culture along with them. Now, obviously, when they went there, they also realized that it is not 
possible for them to completely immerse in their own cultural practices without adopting the local cultures, local traditions, lifestyles, and emotionalities and all of these perspectives. You know, once their cultural perspectives started intermingling with the, started interacting with the local cultural perspectives, these separate dynamics, these separate compartments of food, of music, of the sacred, was not existing as separate components anymore. Now they are existing like they're all interacting with each other. They're all coming together and exchanging perspectives with each other. And that is where I mean, altogether, the whole notion of cultural creolization was born. And then when you look into these narratives as deeper as you get in, what you realize also is it is also about the ocean. It is also about the plants. It is also about it is also about the sky. So it is not just about humans. It's not just about diverse cultural perspectives of the humans, but it's also the more than human beings that are also taking, you know, playing a very pivotal role in the spaces. So if I, I mean, obviously I can go on and on, but I'll stop here by saying that, I mean, when I, when we engage and when I particularly engage with the three spheres of food, music and the sacred, I just don't focus exclusively on the, on the human beings. I also do focus on the different components of the natural environment as well. Right. And um, you know, if you could also talk a little bit about the nature of this ethnography, as well as the other methods that you have used to uncover some of these aspects along with ethnography. Right. Um, actually, I mean, I at least see in that way or I think in that way, like some of the research methods that I sort of navigated through. And it was also at the outset, it is important to uh, confess and acknowledge that it was a very um, complex process of really coming down to a fixed set of research methods and 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 in fact that is something which I sort of did right at the beginning of my book because in the introductory chapter you know right at the beginning I have sort of fleshed out the research methods very categorically so that the readers have an idea and just since it is vastly an ethnographic work. I mean, obviously, I have existing literature reviews, references to existent literature reviews at the backdrop of my work, but uh, a majority of my data and information that I unpack in my book the centers on ethnographic documentations through video documentations, audio documentations, which I've also used as a research method. And then some of the interesting research methods I used were like uh, something called kinship, um, I mean K-I-N-S-H-I-P, kinship where uh, I always wanted to make sure like kinship and guesthood, where I always wanted to make sure that uh, before entering into the community, I should not uh, you know, fall into those very colonially constructed um, ethnographic research methods where one just goes in, extract data, treat the community members as like, uh, you know, data producers and come out without acknowledging their contributions, their work, their energy, their crisis, their lifestyle and the work. So I didn't want to commit that sort of, you know, colonial mistake so what I wanted to what also one thing I kept in mind is that when I walk inside the community I should be respectful I should be humble I should be very open in terms of their perspectives or not and not try to put questions or 
kind of generate a force fit conversation that will only fit my desires of data collection, but rather I should open it up, uh, kind of invite them to share their perspectives and corner points. And then maybe from there, I will obviously utilize the different information and perspectives, which I think, uh, you know, sort of feeds well to the thematic dimension of the book. And also it is important to, as I, as I, talk about the research methods, it is important to uh, acknowledge the point that though in this book, uh, as an official author, it is just my name that is featuring there, but I always do acknowledge this wherever I get a chance to do so. And I'll do that again here, that this book is an outcome of each and every community members whom I have acknowledged in my acknowledgement section. I mean, without their contributions, without their feedback, without their suggestions, without their edits, this book would have stood nowhere. So it's a multi-authored volume, to be honest. I, my name can feature there as a single author, but actually it's a contribution of every community members about their feedback, about their perspectives, about their inputs out there. And I think this is also a form of very important, and I specifically would use the term decolonial research method because that is something I try to integrate in every work that I try to do. And because kinship guesthood where uh, I don't get into a space with this predetermined notion that I know everything, I have an all-pervading entity and I can see and share everything, but also I have that open space to receive what they share with me. And also another method that I really used here was the walking method. Um, and, and obviously I will also use the method of critical diversity literacy as well, but I'll come to that briefly a bit later. So walking method is something, um, you know, which is which is very, uh, very interesting, uh, interesting process of doing ethnographic work where you really uh, don't make the conversation very mechanical, very, very official and very sort of top down approach, but you can just make it very easygoing and intellectually enriching at the same time through casual conversations, through reflections, maybe sitting in coffee shops or roadsides or having conversations and documenting while driving or having a sip of tea just to, you know, break away from these, uh, you know, very restrictive spaces, which have always, which has always been sort of allotted to us by default that, okay, well, if you have to have a conversation with your research participant, this is the space, this is the way, and you can't move out of that. Once you move out of that, that is not valid anymore. That is something which the colonial research methods have always enforced on us. And walking research method is a wonderful way, I believe, to resist that sort of, you know, cloisteredness. And one more thing I also use is what is what is popularly known as the CDL, that is Critical Diversity Literacy, which actually emerged as one of the many projects uh, by, uh, you know, Melissa Stein and Haley Mack, even back quite a few years back in the University of Cape Town. Later on, it sort of emerged and they sort of conceptualized CDL in a very gendered, racial, cultural, political perspective. And that is from where I recontextualized this research method in this work, because obviously gender, culture, race plays a very crucial role in this work. Along with that, there are various other important components as well. So CDL was another very important method where we just don't talk about diversity in a very generic way, but we also try to look in into the hierarchies, the 
the the exclusions, the kind of ignorances that are played out even within our daily discourses of diversity. And that is where critical diversity literacy comes into the usage. That is where we try to look into this whole paradigm of diversity in a very, very critical way. So these are some of the research methods which I found very relevant um, uh, you know, to my work, uh, which I did in, as a part of this project. Right. Also, what role does your own positionality play in this research? Oh, that's a wonderful question, actually. Uh, and, and this is something, again, I usually uh, remain very categorical of to clarify my positionality at the very beginning of any kind of narrative that I engage with. Because, <clears throat> again, as a part of the decolonial exercise, as I always put it, it is important to understand that... Uh, we don't have, none of us in this world has the authority or the right to speak on somebody else's behalf. It's important that maybe what I share, people might find alliance in there. People might find me and my narratives as a cooperative allyship. That's a different story, but still I never have the right to speak on somebody's behalf. So uh, one of the major thing is obviously I am not a Sydney, I'm not a South African Indian. So uh, technically, I am kind of a strong cultural outsider, if I use this particular term. Again, a very abstract and controversial term, but that is the best thing coming in my mind, that I, I was a cultural outsider, social outsider, and my positionality there was a researcher, as a learner, as a co-thinker, co-learner, co-researcher out there in the space. I, again, as I clarified this perspective quite a bit in my previous response as well, that I always try my best to make sure that I don't go in there as I have come to that sort of colonial enlightened mindset that I know everything and I have come to put you out into the world and let the people know about you and make you famous and all of these colonially constructed over-romanticized, hyper-romanticized sort of attitudes, research attitudes. No, I very much deny them. I very much sort of disown them in my work. And so obviously to, to precisely say my positionality was there as a co-learner, co-researcher and co-thinker who was very open to go walk into the spaces, learn from the local community members, document their voices as much as possible through the work. And most importantly, to, uh, to sort of give them the acknowledge, the, to acknowledge them as prominently, as respectfully as possible um, through my work. Right. I'm now going back to that question of the Indian Ocean, because we began sort of with that. And how do you understand the Indian Ocean as a material space in this work? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, Indian Ocean for me is like a lively character in this work. Uh, I mean, it's not just it's not just a kind of an object, a distant object in the nature, because uh, the different narratives that I share, like in one of the uh, chapters that talk about spiritual creolization. And in that particular chapter on spiritual creolization, I very categorically talk about some folklores from uh, the Siddhi community or uh, the Afro-Indian community. And what is interesting is if one reads through those folklores, uh, the sea plays a very, very important role. The sea, the Indian Ocean, 
specifically is a very important character in those folklores. For instance, uh, you know, let's say when we learn about this particular uh, story, when we learn about this particular narrative that, um, you know, um, how did the Siddhis, Siddhi community arrived in India, like the folklore that is derived from the from the Siddhi community. It's basically the sea, how and it the and once they sing those songs, what they usually refer to as zikars, those religious songs that documents the way in which uh, you know, the Siddhi ancestors, the spiritual ancestors of the Siddhi community, the Mai Misra, uh, Baba Gur, Baba Habash. Uh, Siddhi Sayed and many other of their ancestors, spiritual ancestors, how they how they came from, uh, you know, the lands of ancient Ethiopia, Sudan, and widely the Nubian Valley. I mean, which existed prior to becoming these countries like modern day Ethiopia and Sudan and all of this Egypt and all of these places. They crossed the uh, the forests and the Indian Ocean. And then what hard work they took undertook to come to India and bless, you know, bless their own community members in India. So, you know, there you find the ocean. Now, uh, for example, when people specifically sing the religious hymns of Mai Misra, one of their female um, spiritual ancestors of the Siddhi community, uh, rather the only female spiritual ancestor of the Siddhi community, when they sing uh, the song, uh, you know, they play something, a kind of musical instrument. It's called the Misar Kanga. That's uh, if I have to pronounce it in the English way, it's like M-I-S-R, Misar. And the other word is Kanga, K-A-N-G-A. It's, it's basically like a jingle, right? And, uh, you know, a funnel-shaped uh, funnel instrument. And inside the funnel, like played with both hands, two funnels. And inside the funnel, uh, there are 108 stones, Okay, and 108 is a very good spiritual, a very, it regards a very good spiritual number, you know, for the Muslims and for the Hindus and various other religious communities as well. Um, and uh, so those stones, those 108 stones that they basically put inside the funnel, they basically collect it from the sea, from the Indian Ocean, around different parts of Gujarat that they have access to. So you see the ocean in this way, what happens is the ocean is a very, integral part of their material existence, integral part of their spiritual existence, integral part of their emotional and cultural and historical existence as well. So in many, one of the many ways in which they remember, uh, in which they uh, preserve their ancestral memories that have been carried from one generation to another, mostly in oral forms without any, with hardly without any, you know, written documentations. The Indian Ocean plays a very important role. And if you look at a majority uh, of their zikrs, the, the religious hymns that they sing, uh, which again, you know, by default, they will narrate stories from the Indian Ocean. By default, they will narrate stories how their spiritual ancestors and how their family members they came across the Indian Ocean to the different coast, uh, to the different coastal spaces of Gujarat and other parts of India. And also, I mean, another important uh, aspect of Indian Ocean as a, the re reflection of Indian Ocean as a material space that you see very um, categorically uh, in their in their work or in their existence maybe, is also the usage of the Swahili Creole words, like Creole words in their in their songs, in their zikas, where which is a mixture of the Eastern African Swahili language along with 
you know, intermingled with Gujarati, with Hindi, with Arabic and Urdu. And they use these words, Swahili Creole words, uh, while singing the zikrs, which is again, uh, you know, uh, not much uh, documented. I, I know uh, two very uh, prominent ethnographers who basically are musical ethnographers who basically had has been working for a very long period of time uh you know to sort of document and archive the different religious songs of this piece they have been working for a certain period of time that is Ami Kathleen Jairus Boy and Nazir Pai Jairus Boy who Nazir uh, Jairus Boy unfortunately uh, you know is is no more uh but Ami Kathleen continues to work there but these are just very 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 rare instances where you see people are even aware of this perspective that the zikrs that this saying do consist of Swahili cruel words. But you see, you know, in this way, but, but the Indian Ocean in this way is so prominent and is so much, uh, you know, so much existent in their daily ways of um, existence. Right. Uh, so, also, how does the book bring together the African diaspora in India and the Indian diaspora in South Africa? Because, you know, at the beginning itself, you talked about the interconnections between the two countries. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, uh, see, uh, first and foremost thing, we have to understand one thing, that the context, and obviously I have picked up very specific historical context because it is not obviously possible to take every historical context of the conversation. Otherwise, that would be a never-ending conversation for sure. Probably in the future works, I would like to explore that. But in the context of this work, I have very specifically taken into account um, the time period that is when um, the cities first arrived in India, which is actually as historically documented. I mean, they came over two phases. First, where obviously on back in 13th century with the Islamic invaders, that is when the group of Siddhis in Gujarat, that is from where they came as, as slaves, as palace guards, as some of them as musicians and mendicants and all of these roles. And there were also a group of Siddhis who came later on back in um, 15th century uh you know back in uh, at the time when the portuguese uh, invaders slash later on colonizers arrived in india in the coast uh, i mean in, in kerala in the coastal regions of kerala that is when the second phase of uh, um cities basically came in and they they are the ones who are mostly settled you will find in parts of maharashtra Karnataka, hyderabad and all of those regions now um and simultaneously, the time period that I took for to represent the Indian diaspora in South Africa, because again, uh, to understand the Indian diaspora in South Africa in generic terms is very problematic, because there you will find the indentured laborers, you will find the slaves, you will find the passenger Indians, and then you will find later on many folks just going and settling in South Africa out of their own choice, right? And, and they all have their different levels of social dynamics, their identities within a particular society, and all of these different forms of very subtle hierarchies and, uh, you know, other forms of, you know, uh, what to say, like different dynamical practices, right? So I'm, I was specifically focused on the indentured South African Indian community or those, I mean, obviously indentures don't exist anymore, but I mean, indentureship doesn't exist anymore, but those 
individuals, South African Indian individuals who trace their ancestry uh, from the indentured um, Indians. So again, for, for that, uh, what I have done is I have very specifically, uh, you know, focused on the 19th century part, that is when SS Truro, uh, the ship that first took the, under the British regime, first took the Indians from different from the southern coasts of India to South Africa. But also here it is very crucial to mention that this was not the first time when the Indians were taken as indentured laborers to South Africa. I mean, even prior to that, at the time of the Dutch rule in South Africa, and when the British has not yet invaded India completely, and the Dutch were actually ruling some parts of or trying to take control of some parts of India. And at that point of time, several slaves were actually transported from Southeast Asia through Bengal to South Africa. So, so that was another important, uh, you know, a historical trajectory that we often don't speak about. But I particularly focused, uh, you know, my doc documentation about the Indian diaspora or the South African indigenous Indians taken at the point of 19th century. And when we look now, keeping these time frames to the backdrop, when we look at the ways in which, you know, their existence in like the existence of the cities in India and uh, the existence of the indentured laborers in South Africa unfolded in those diverse periods of time, you see a lot of interesting overlaps, right, in terms of their approach towards the local cultures and traditions in terms of the emotional and the cult cultural crisis and most importantly the linguistic crisis that they were highly encountering while trying to interact with the locals uh, the kind of tortures the kind of abuses that they have to bear uh, you know from their colonial masters uh, where actually had a lot of interesting similarities. So on the one side, it is important to clarify that there is no direct sort of link and exchange between the Indian diaspora in South Africa and the African diaspora in India. But in terms of in a wider, uh, in a wider historical and argumentative space, if we put these communities together, what we see is we locate a lot of interesting overlaps, and those overlaps be basically in terms of music and food and spiritual practices and dance and all of these elements uh, formed a very important thread of, you know, a, a thread of connectivity between these two communities in this work. Right. So <clears throat> could you also explain the usage of the term creolization in this book with a few examples maybe and how you think it is a multicultural and multiracial acknowledgement? Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, um, I have I have briefly briefly shared with whatever I've shared about creolization in my previous responses so far. Uh, to to further elaborate on that, it's important to understand that again, it's a it's a very humble and gentle reminder to all of us that here the term creolization is not specifically restricted to the linguistic context. Obviously, while discussing the Swahili Creole Zikers in one of the chapters, um, I do talk about, I bring this linguistic component very prominently, but along with that, the components also expand around how, uh, you know, for instance, if I just give you in terms of food, right? Like for instance, um, 
and and mostly you see the creole foods the rituals and the cultures of creole foods are not that prominent within the um african indians in india but you see mostly it is very prominent in south africa like uh uh they have something called a, a very famous sauce i mean if the, i mean amongst the listeners who stay in south africa or who have been in south africa there they must be very much familiar with this chakalaka sauce it's called c h a k a l a k and it's, it's very famous like even if you go to the like the grocery shops you will see tinned chakalaka has been sold now what is a chakalaka now chakalaka is a very interesting mixture of zulu uh bantu and indian community spices and this actually has emerged from these indentured farms that is where they interacted with each other because they didn't have a common language so obviously one of their major ways of exchanging emotions and perspectives with each other was food so food for them became a tool of exchange a tool of solidarity a kind of agency of languaging with each other right even before they learned each other's language technically so so where you see that you know as on the one side uh, the, it it consists of you know broad beans the local broad beans then uh, tomato puree on the other side it will also consist of jeera powders then it will consist of dhania powder it may consist of garam masala powder then a bit of red chili powder and so then they use some then sweeteners the local sweeteners they use they use tamarinds in it to sort of bring bring a tangy sort of taste in that kind of sauce so you know you you see a very interesting mixture of indian and uh, indian spices and uh, you know indian ingredients and local south african ingredients and cooking up something so interesting as chakalaka or you can also say like for example there is something called the madumbi curry now madumbi what is madumbi madumbi is actually a form of yam you know what we refer to as the yam vegetable the root vegetable now madumbi what they do is i mean in india also there is a culture of having yam and tapioca and all of those things uh, there what they do is they basically would uh, you know boil the madumbi and make it like a mashed like what we do with mashed potato they make it like a mashed yam that is the madumbi they prepare and then they will prepare a very spicy lamb curry or a beef curry or maybe those who are vegetarians maybe a spicy vegetable mixed vegetable curry and that curry is very indian in nature even in south african homes if you go to local south african homes you will find it's very indian in nature like they will add all of those again very traditional powders and whole spices into there making it very hot and spicy some sometimes garnishing it you know if they want to make it more innovative and experimental they will garnish it with different uh, kinds of leaves and all of those perspectives so you see i mean this is something which is uh, very interesting very very important so you know this is another strong example how the creolization of food is taking place like where you see simultaneously south african foods and i mean again south african foods as such is a very very uh, um, expansive and abstract term to use i mean within south africa you have different communities and sub communities and all of their food perspectives 
gets combined with different Indian food perspectives, again, the different sub layers of Indian foods, and makes a very interesting mixture. So, I mean, obviously, I can give ample of examples from music and other, other perspectives as other dimensions as well, just but to share these two as very prominent examples to show that how it is not just an accidental mixture, but this whole preparation of these foods, the, the intention and the cultures of preparing these foods completely emerge from diverse forms of multicultural, multiracial acknowledgements. And that is what I actually mentioned at the very uh, a kind of bit ahead uh, that, um, you know, when even when they were unable to converse in their own language, when the Indians didn't learn the Zulu language or the Bantu language or the Kosa language yet, um, you know, or or uh, you know the local Zulu people, mostly the with the Zulus, where the indentured Indians shared their spaces and the farms, the sugarcane farms, and all of the colonizers. The Zulus didn't learn the local Indian languages. It was food and music that played two very crucial tools to sort of exchange and create a kind of relationality and and kind of understanding with each other. All right. So last question, uh, do you think that there is uh, some sort of future scope of research in this area? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is ample and ample of future scope in this research because uh, one argument I always put in and which, again, I have very firmly mentioned in my book as well, and that is the term creolization may sound fascinating, uh, for many of us, creolizing cultures, creolizing traditions, creolizing lifestyles, all of these dimensions can be very new to us. But the thing is, if we very categorically look into our existence, our spontaneous ways and spontaneous modes of existence, what we usually see is that... Um, it is always very intercultural. It is always very interactional in nature. I mean, no society, no culture, no community can claim that we have always existed of our own. And we have never derived or we have never been influenced by other cultures, traditions, and lifestyles. This is the basic mode of our existence. Creolization is the basic mode of our existence. You know, one thing I always critique, and I'm sure... Uh, you and maybe other many other uh, listeners would agree with me that we often argue about authentic cuisines, right? We walk around, we look at restaurants, we see there are so many restaurants which always advertise we are a South Indian authentic cuisine or let's say Assamese authentic cuisine or let's say Bengali authentic cuisine or other authentic cuisines. But this term authenticity is itself such a problematic term. I mean, how can I claim my authenticity when the kind of spices, when the kind of vegetables or the fruits or the meat or the fish or whatever we consume on a daily basis has its root in multiple geographical spaces, cultural spaces. These are all multi-rooted. We all have a multi-rooted upbringing in general. 
we all have a multi-rooted evolution in general and that multi-rootedness needs to be acknowledged very deeply and firmly and one of the many ways of doing that in the present and in the future and forever is through acknowledging the creolized states of existence that we exist with and it is not just about physical but also the emotional elements of existence as well. Oh, well, uh, thank you so much, Sian, for uh, talking uh, so lucidly and passionately about your work. And it was an absolute pleasure to uh, engage in this discussion. Thank you once again for giving NBN that time. Thank you so much, Ritipurno, once again, and for these very provocative questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.